We are um, on a steady diet of this text. We have been in uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus uh, for a few months. We're about to close it up at the end of this month, actually, or the end of next month, actually. And uh, it's been a great time to see uh, the advice that uh, Paul, Timothy, and Titus's spiritual father um, has given to his disciples. So we are going to be talking today about, um, about uh, let's see, qualifications for leaders in the church. And, um, you know, you've probably heard a version of this sermon on a version of this text several times in your Christian walk. Um, it's usually taught very wooden. Here are the qualifications for elders and deacons. One, two, three, four, five. And it's, it's almost pulled out of the context when it's taught like that, I think. Because the context is after weeks and weeks and weeks that we've been teaching on false teaching, right? That's what we've been talking about throughout this entire letter or, or, or group of letters. Um, it is combating false teachers within the church. So I hate to look at qualifications for elders apart from false teaching. In the church, that's why we're giving qualifications. Um, Paul and Timothy and Titus were experiencing this this time in the church, and they were young churches, where people were coming in and teaching against the scriptures. We're teaching against the teaching of Christ. We're teaching their version of the gospel, whether it be lighter, sometimes or heavier, harder, legalistic. And this is the, the reason, the purpose for qualifications for leaders in the church, to combat those opportunities that false teachers have to come into the church and begin to lead. So that's what we're, uh, that's what we're up against. I'm going to start, even though we're in First and Second Timothy and Titus, I want to take you to Matthew. Matthew knew something about this too. Here's what he writes. <clears throat> he says, in, uh, this is in... Uh, Chapter 7, I'm beginning in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit, the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, by having qualifications for elders, for leaders in the church, we're trying to have a way that we can be fruit inspectors, right? <laughs> we want to inspect fruit. Um, so how do, we, how do we have fruit? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about that today, and I think that is, the, uh, is what uh, Paul is trying to do. So first I want to use my little handy-dandy whiteboard and give you a formula. Everybody loves math on Sundays, right? So let's do a formula. So it says C plus C, plus C, plus C, 
plus C plus C over T. I think this is a formula for qualified elders. And we're going to explain what that means. Maybe it doesn't make sense yet, but I hope it will by the time we're done. So let's get started with deacons and elders, leaders in the church. What are they? What's the difference? Right? Sometimes we get them confused. Sometimes we overlap. Sometimes some serve as the others and vice versa. And we want to see what the text here says about the difference. Um, probably the most famous, if you want to call it that, um, the most, um, most taught um, text on the difference between deacons and elders is uh, coming from the book of Acts chapter 6, where deacons are separated out, set apart from the, uh, from the elders, from the overseers, from the teachers. So let's see, um, Acts chapter 6, uh, starting with verse 1, it says, in those days, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the, of the disciples and said, it would be right, it would, excuse me, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. The proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. They had, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So we're, we're, we're in a young church right now. You are in a young church. Don't let this building fool you. Uh, we've been here three years. Um, our three-year anniversary is in September. So we're a young church. We, are, um, we have a lot of similarities with the early church, and I know those are limited, but <laughs> some of those similarities are we're at a place where we, we, are, we are kind of serving as deacons and elders and uh, the guy who preaches on Sunday also cleans the toilets and, you know, I mean, it just, it is what it is. This is how things happen when you're a young church, when things are just getting established. And um, he, they saw that things were being neglected in the life of the church and the elders, the overseers, the teachers were having to make some decisions. What are we going to do? Do we need to separate out? Do we need to have some people assigned to do some tasks, other people assigned to do other tasks? How can we best work that out? So this is what they came up with. They had, so they had some assigned to do administration to take care of the, the overseeing of, uh, they called it the, di the daily distribution. They later then called it handling financial matters. Um, it's, it's called in other uh, translations, the waiting of tables. Um, but however way you look at it, it's serving. Um, the thing about uh, the, the separation or, or, the, or the distinguishing between elders and deacons is leaders serve and servants lead, don't they? So this, this hard line rule that we make sometimes isn't that clear because leaders serve and servants lead. 
Um, but we do recognize the wisdom in setting people aside to, to pray for, to handle, to teach, to administrate. Um, and that's what is happening here in Acts 6. Um, it wasn't something that came right out of the rule book that they said, okay, let's look at the rules for starting a new church. It says here, day one, you must set aside elders. Day two, deacons. That isn't how it worked. There was a need, and they made a decision to assess that need, and, and this is how they move forward, um, by, by, uh, uh, by setting apart the, the deacons to, to then administer um, these financial matters and, and other things come up later. Um, what, what you'll see, I mean, here we go, the, the first um, deacon who has selected Stephen, if you read a little bit further, it, it isn't long before he's preaching. <laughs> so, wait, wait, he's a deacon, he can't preach. Well, of course he can. <laughs> he still meets the qualifications. He's still a teacher. He's still meeting a need in the church. Um, this uh, lesson, though, today will definitely help us to determine who, who's best qualified to do that. How can we determine, based off of what we know about uh, the people in, in leadership, so that we can, remember, not fall into false teaching? That, because that's, really, that's the goal of what we're doing. It's not to create um, classes within the church. In no way is this to create classes within the church. This is to just delineate um, jobs, roles um, of folks that are, that are willing to serve and to protect what it is that we protect as Christians, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that's our number one goal. So we want to make sure that the gospel stays clear and, uh, and true uh, to the one who gave it to us. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and move forward into First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, um, since that's what we're here to talk about today. So we've seen how the deacons and the elders um, were differentiated, and now we're going to see what does uh, Paul, what advice does he give to Timothy first and then Titus about how are we going to uh, create a, a process or a pipeline so that we can then have fruit to inspect or to, to, to see um, as, uh, as Jesus talk, taught in Matthew. So let's, let's read here in 1 Timothy 3. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, 
managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there, that's probably the most complete teaching in the text um, coming from 1 Timothy um, about this qualification of the, of the overseer or you may have, a, depending on what Bible you're using, it may say elder, it may say shepherd, it may say pastor. Um, those are used interchangeably throughout the text uh, based off of that Greek word. Um, and, then, um, and then deacons. So uh, uh, we see those two things separated. We, we see a little bit more taught in 2 Timothy. Um, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, The Lord's slave, back to, again, servant, leader, right? All, all working together. Uh, must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. And then in Titus, who's in a similar situation on Crete, he says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that we will be able both to encourage with sound teaching, and to refute, refute those who contradict it. So, tall order, right? <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I get it. There's a lot there. But again, in the context that this was written, they were talking about churches that they knew. These were real churches. These weren't theoretical churches that someday we need to have the best idea for how we're going to establish elders in those churches. We're talking about actual churches <laughs> that were already operating, that were already gathering the saints together. And there were problems in those churches. The opposite of those qualifications that we just read were happening. People were in, who were in leadership roles were abusing their leadership by being all the things that we just talked about. Um, and most importantly, in my opinion, is the last part that we just read. They were not holding to the faithful message as taught. And then, therefore, the, the end of that says, so that means they were not able to encourage with sound teaching, and they were not able to refute those who contradict it. As teachers of the Bible, those are the two main things that we have to be able to do. We have to be able to encourage with sound teaching, and we have to be able to refute contradictions. That is the goal of, of why it's so important for them to set these, these people in place to lead God's church. So back to my formula. What do these C's mean? Well, I've lumped some of these together into kind of categories, and I hope it helps you to kind of make sense of all those things. It's, it's, those are long lists, right? There's a lot of things that are going on in there. So let's look at this as calling, right? We want to assess a person's calling. If they feel that they're called to lead, we want to make sure that they are. They're called. 
And, and there are ways that we can assess that, and we'll talk about that. Their character, definitely something else we want to talk about. Most of these items in here address character, not conduct, which is another C, right? They assess character. Competency, right? We want our leaders to be competent at some level to be able to do what it is that they signed up to do. Commitment, very important. When you're leading the church of God, you have to be committed. It's not going to be easy. Your, your co-pastor might move to Pittsburgh. <laughs> I mean, just an example. <laughs> I already said conduct, compassion. I think we neglect that one too often, don't we? The compassion of our leaders. So calling, character, competency, commitment, compassion, and conduct on the top. We want to we assess all those things, right? So do we just get a resume? Just get a resume and we look over it and we look for those things. Yep, awesome. They're all in there. He, he said we got them. I think that's a beginning to know those things, right? But that T, I think, is the most important part of being a fruit inspector. It's time. It's time. What's a resume? A resume is a snapshot, right? That is a moment in time. Yeah, maybe those things happened once, but can those things continue over time? I think you guys have witnessed this happen with Hamilton and myself, let's be real. But Hamilton came here as an intern. He signed up for one year to kick the tires of church planting. And here he is three years later, and you all have been able to inspect, assess, evaluate, encourage his walk with the Lord as a servant of the church of God. So you, you've been part of this process, whether, whether you know it or not, or whether you recognize it or not. You've been doing this for three years with Hamilton. And that's why I'm so excited to go through his ordination, which is going to happen at the end of next month. So we'll be able to see him go from coming here as a guy who just graduated from seminary to kick the tires and be a helper to be the leader of a church. I mean, he's been that here. Make no mistake. He's been that here. Like, we all know that. Thank God. But now he gets to go to Pittsburgh and continue to do that for the kingdom. That's hap- the work that's happening there in, in Pittsburgh. So, uh, so this shouldn't be a surprise, kind of. <laughs> you, you've, you've been a part of this process. You've seen it all play out. So, so let's go back into the text here and see if this makes sense. So let's start with the very beginning here in 1 Timothy 3. The first thing that we saw was an aspiration to noble work. If you're called of God to be a leader of his church, you have an aspiration to a noble work. I, I believe that's true. It is noble work to, to be a, a worker in God's uh, kingdom, to be a tool in his hand. Um, so that, that's, that's calling, right? We, and we want to assess calling. Um, just because somebody wakes up one day and says, I, I think God told me he wants me to be a pastor. Well, maybe he did. And I don't want to say that he didn't. He does. He still does that. <laughs> He still calls people to, to, to preach the word and teach the word and lead his church. I think there are ways that we can assess that calling. Uh, so many times we tend to just say, oh, well, if God said it, then who am I to say he didn't say it? Very experiential. A lot of people love to do, they just keep things experiential. God said, you can't refute what God said. 
Well, I think there are ways that we can, we can assess it, we can evaluate it. Um, so, so one is aspiration. I mean, I think that if, if you're called to do a hard thing, like ministry, you should desire to do that a little bit. If, if you don't have the desire inside of you, a passion to do it, it it's going to be really difficult. So that's one thing that you want to assess is that aspiration, that desire, that, and, and pray that it's God-given. Um, you, you want to you see that there's an adequacy of some sort for them to do it. So aspiration, adequacy, that they have a competency that they're, they're growing in, that they can do that work. Uh, and then this is, the, this is where y'all come in. Okay, so we've talked about aspiration, adequacy, affirmation. Very important. Affirmation. If God's called you to do something, there are people around you who would say, I think he has. I see those gifts in you. I see you developing. I see you leaning in hard to the things that he's asking you to do. Um, and, and we neglect that as a church, right? We neglect that. We need to be so encouraging to people who are taking steps in their faith, taking steps toward ministry, putting themselves out there, doing things that are hard. We need to be encouraging. That's, what the, that's why we, the whole body is around us, right? To be that encouragement. Yes, to be that accountability, right? We need that too. But we really need encouragement when we're taking those first steps. So, aspiration, that first C, calling. Above reproach, other translations may call this blameless. You help me. What C would you, would you be assessing for someone who you pray is above reproach or blameless? You would want to assess what? Their, their character. Absolutely. What else? Their conduct. Absolutely. Right? Maybe, maybe more than one. They may overlap a little bit. But sure, you're going to see these. Husband of one wife may speak to commitment. Right? Sensible. More on character for me. Respectable. Hospitable. That may speak even more to compassion. Able to teach may speak to competency. Not addicted to wine may speak to conduct, also to commitment. You can't, I can't tell you how many <laughs> stories I've heard of people who have, number one, seminary. When I went to visit seminary, uh, they have some like homes there that kind of serve as um, a bed and breakfast for people who are visiting. So uh, I stayed in one of these bed and breakfasts uh, overnight. The family stayed there, and we were visiting seminary just to See if this was the place that God would have us to come to prepare for ministry. And uh, the, the guy who owned the home, or at least was, was uh, uh, caring for the home, um, was the host, he, uh, he said, uh, you're the second military person that's been here today. Because I was still on active duty. I, I took some time off in the summer before I left active duty and, and was, uh, was visiting. And he said, you're the second one that's been here this week. Uh, there was a girl who came here from uh, Germany to come and, and visit the seminary, and um, man, she was all gung-ho that first day. She couldn't wait to get, get out and, and see all the professors and, and see the campus, and, and she just was convinced that this was the place for her to come and study. He said, but then she came back after that day and said, nope, this isn't it. Not the place I'm going. And he said, what are you talking about? How, how could your mind have changed in one day visiting this campus? He said, I've been here. I know all these professors. I know all the people that are here. What could have possibly convinced you in a day that this is not the place for you? 
And she said, I'm from Germany. I have a huge wine collection. And they won't allow me to have wine. They won't allow me to drink while I'm in seminary. So there's no way. There's no way I'm doing it. I have a fortune in wine. And he said, you're right. And she went, what? He said, no, you're right. If you can't set aside your wine collection for Jesus Christ, then you're probably not supposed to come to seminary here. <laughs> he was pretty bold with that statement. But I think that speaks to commitment. Let's just face it. There are things that God's calling us to set aside right now in our lives. All of us. All of us. Will we do it? Will we set it aside? How committed are we? Let's continue. Not a bully. Compassion. Gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not greedy. Able to manage his household. Not a new convert. Having a good reputation among outsiders. These are all things that we can look at, right? We can see these over time. If we're in a situation where you know, people are allowed to, to, to come and go, to come and be part of, of, of the ministry. So, so another thing that I think comes up during this is um, every pillar church requires the pastors to have been a member for at least a year. And this is why. I mean, that, that sounds like a good business practice, <laughs> but it's more than that. It's a commandment, <laughs> we think, from the scriptures to have that period of time where you can assess a leader. So that's something that I went through. I was a member of Pillar Dumfries before they sent me here to plant Pillar Woodlawn. And every other Pillar Church uh, pastor has been through a, at least a year as a member. And all that so that there can be that period of time of assessment and evaluation. It's not just based on your resume. It's not just based on what you, what you were able to write down that happened maybe in a moment in your lifetime. Um, you want to know the people <laughs> that, uh, number one, that, that are sending you out and th that are gathering with you weekly. That, that, that builds a level of trust um, that you can then go back and say, we did this. We, we know this guy. We've seen him um, in, in his at his worst. I mean, we hope. I mean, not that we hope people will be at their worst, but we hope we're there when they are so that we can see how they, how they, uh, how they fare through it. Um, I think that's very true of a leader. You want to see them at their worst and their best, not just, not just their best. Um, and we could go through, through these other two passages. Um, a lot of it is redundant, um, but you get the gist, right? Be able to break those up into kind of categories of, of things that we can assess um, for the person who would lead, who would serve, the local church. So it's important. We would all, we would all agree that it's important. Uh, we don't want to have um, leaders who would um, take advantage of, our, of the relationships that are, that are built in the church, who would um, waste the resources of the local church. I mean, all these things are important, right? But I think there's something that is way more important and, um, and we, we read the, the section from, from Matthew. And again, context is very important. Um, it's no 
uh, mistake when you see um, a text near another text that is, um, that is well, let me, just let, let me just read it and you can be the judge. So, so I read, beware of false prophets, right? The, 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 they'll come as, uh, as wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, I, wanna, I wanna read what's on either side of that so that you can understand just how important um, this examination of church leaders is in the scope of the Christian life. So it begins like this. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Let's just press pause right there. Why are we surprised that the church has this many people in it today? It says right here, the narrow gate. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. It should break our hearts, no doubt. It should break our hearts. But the success of a church should never be measured on how many butts are in those pews. Let's just be real. Because we've already got the deck stacked against us. <laughs> the, the road is narrow that leads to life. And if we're gathering the saints to be equipped for the work of the ministry, we better get used to being uh, lonely every once in a while. So then it goes from that into beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. And we've just talked about our list of fruit that we pray that we can inspect, assess, evaluate, and put our seal of approval on as we evaluate leaders for the church. But what's at stake? What's really at stake? Is it the building crumbles? Is it the ministry gets down to where there's only a few folks? Is it we lose our land? I mean, what's, what's the ramifications for, for a bad leader? Churches have them all the time, right? They come and they go and they leave. Um, what are the real ramifications here? I'll tell you. Jesus knew. <laughs> He says this, right after that passage I just read, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Those are some strong words. You know, and, and I think that's funny too. We, we tend to forget that Jesus could gather a crowd like that, right? I mean, he could do miracles. I would come to see miracles. He could gather a crowd like that. But guess what he did when he got 5,000 people in a room? 
he said things like that. <laughs> and they all went home. <laughs> because it's hard. Because the, the path that leads to life is narrow. And it is hard. This is what Paul, this is why he made qualifications for elders. Not because he didn't want people to argue about what color carpet you bought. He didn't care about carpet. Not because of who controlled the deposits that are made after the offering is taken. He didn't care about that. He cared about the clear presentation of the gospel message that still saves souls and changes lives. If we let that get changed because of our comfort, we are responsible for sending people to meet the Lord to which he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's because of the leaders that led them there. That's why it's so important who leads. And that's why I, I give you full permission to press my life uh, against that formula, against this text. Because that's the last thing that I want to hear when I'm in front of a holy God. And he says, depart from me, you never knew me. Because I don't want to say, but I did all these things. But I planted a church. But I cleaned toilets in your name. But I, whatever, sang a song. I'll say, you never, I never knew you. We need each other in that process. One doesn't do all the work and the other benefits or consumes, right? We're all in this process together. And it's because the gospel is what's at stake, not our comfort. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We're called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And when I get comfortable, you need to afflict me because I'll do, I'll do that to you, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Let's pray. Let me say. Father, we have no excuses. I know we're so good at making them. I know we're so good at justifying the things that we do that aren't in your will, that aren't according to your purposes. But we have no excuses because you've written it all down in the language that we speak and read. And we neglect it. Help us, Father, first and foremost, to grow in our love for your word. Because if we'll get in your word, we'll grow in our love for you, no doubt. You are so good and so great. And if we would just spend time with you, we would be head over heels in love. Help us, Father, to, to change our desires that are truly ours, our sinful, godless desires that pull us away from you. change our hearts, change our minds so that we would have this new passion for your ways and your word 
and your will and that we would subject ours always under yours no matter what it is. What, I had such a blessing this week, Lord, spending time with these young people who are at the end of their high school careers making these decisions that they think will affect their entire life. Thank you for the words that you gave me to share with them that it's your will that matters. It's your desires that matter. If we will subject our choices, our decisions to yours, that's exactly where we want to be. So help us to do that, Lord, today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for you revealing yourself to us in such a way that it's at the tip of our fingers. We have one on every shelf in our house, probably. We're spoiled rotten. Help us, Father, to use this privilege that you've given us to prepare so that when we do meet someone who has never heard the name of Jesus, who does not have the word of God translated into their language, that we would be ready to give the answer, that we would be, be ready to share the truth, not just a truth, not just our truth, the truth. And when others would come with a different gospel, with a different message that does not lead to life, but leads to condemnation, leads to bondage, that we would be there with your truth to contradict the lie. Because the devil is still in the lying business. He still has lots of people out there who are working for him. I pray, Father, that we would always be quick to repent of the lies that we believe and to have faith and trust in you because you are the truth and the way and the life. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.